Let me just take a second, just real quickly, and point something out. I, as, as I teach through Scripture, it's my desire to push you guys a little deeper, to, to get you to think about and, and dig on the, on the Scriptures deeper than what we typically do. I mean, even if you're a person who likes to read through the Bible, oftentimes we read it and we don't really think about what we're reading. And so it's my desire as we come here to dig on it a little further. But depth isn't always about looking at just one phrase and just really picking it apart. Depth of understanding of Scripture is having that, that understanding or being able to look at those, those phrases and those terms and, and dig on them, but also then be able to put them back in the whole meta-narrative Scripture or the whole big picture. Because apart from that, they mean nothing. And so today as we go through this, the reason we're going to try and push through all these verses today is because it's one story. And for me to separate it or pull it apart, it's not going to do it justice. And so we'll, we'll just push through. We'll do as, as good as we can. And, and uh, we'll hopefully uh, leave you guys plenty of time to worship at the end. But Acts chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Um, as we've continued to push into this, into this series, as we've studied the book of Acts, we've seen a pattern over and over revealed by Luke's account of what is happening as the church has started, as it's planted And we've seen God's message being moved by um, God's power. We've seen that this is God's mission to redeem his people by his message and and through his power. We've seen that over and over and over. Well, today I want you to pay attention again to another pattern that has been established that I haven't talked about yet. And that pattern is... That pattern is... um, a, a. a picture of two different perspectives. Sorry, that threw me off a little bit. I typically don't uh, even hear those babies. But uh, anyway, that one, that one got me. Um, uh, two different perspectives. A perspective of looking inwardly and then a, a, sp- a perspective of looking outwardly. And the, the church did this in Acts chapter 1. If you, look at, if you look back at how Acts started, Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to receive power, you're going to... You're going to receive this power, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He says, but go back to Jerusalem and wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they sit together, and they pray, and they have a very introverted or very inward-focused time together. Ten days that they spent together. They weren't thinking about how to see people saved. They weren't thinking about what to do next. They weren't thinking about anything except that we are to wait, and we're praying for one another. We're seeking God's face They replaced a leader that had fallen, um, and in so doing, they became very inwardly focused. And then Acts chapter 2 happens, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, and immediately their perspective changes, and no longer are they looking inward at one another and one another uh, uh, fulfilling one another's needs and spending time just simply together, but they become very evangelistic and become very outward focused. So two different perspectives happen. Now, I want to make a distinction here because this is different in this point than any other place in Acts. Because in Acts chapter 1, they had no mission yet. They knew the mission was coming. They knew that they had been assigned to do something, but they were told to wait. So they were, they were required to be inwardly focused. As Acts chapter 2 comes and they have this power, then obviously it's time to step up and get to work and do this mission that God's given them to do. But then after, after Peter stands, after the miracle of Pentecost happens, and Peter stands up and gives them the first gospel presentation, and thousands of people come to believe, immediately Luke turns and shows us an inwardly focused church. Not that they didn't care about what was going on on the outside, 
but they were very inwardly focused. They were, they were following the apostles' teaching. They were meeting together in one another's homes. They were committing to one another, living life, doing life together. They were praying together. They were observing the sacraments of the church together. And, and as they did this, as they focused inwardly, God used them in a big way to, to continue to grow the church. And so even in their inward focus, God was using that to bring people in and add to that. And he was growing his church. So then we see, just in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, we see Peter and John on the way up to the temple to do what they did. Every day they would go up to the temple during the times of worship. It's, it's the assumption of most people that they went up not to observe the Jewish uh, observances and the sacrifices, but they were going up to the temple and that they would go and preach and teach. And so they were on their way to the temple and they see a, a, a guy that can't walk. They tell him, hey, get up and walk. He gets up and walks. It blows everybody away. They preach the gospel and boom, here the church grows in a massive way again. Just over, I mean, just thousands of people respond. And so we see an outward focus again. And as that changes in Acts chapter 3 through 4 into the end of chapter 4, we see again, Luke give us an understanding of an inward focused church concerned with one another, meeting one another's needs, selling properties and giving things away so that they can take care of one another. And then again in Acts chapter 4, it turns into Acts chapter 5. And Acts chapter 5 gives us a picture of God purifying his church. Ananias and Sapphira come. They want the glory. They want people to recognize them. And so they sell some property. They only give part of the proceeds to the apostles to be used for his kingdom. And they tell a lie about it. And they say, we used it all. We gave you it all. But they kept some for themselves. And God purifies his church and kills them. Boom, they're dead. Very inward focused at this moment. Very inward focused. But that sets on these people, the the people of God, it sets on them a fear of God and an understanding that, hey, we're still broken, sinful people. We need his grace. And he's called us to move. He has power to bring punishment and condemnation, but he's called us to move in an active way. And so that's that's what begins to happen. And Peter and John, or or I'm sorry, um, in in Acts chapter 5, we're going to turn now from that inward focus again to an outward focus. And so as we do that, I want you to see this this, this, uh, perspective or this pattern because I want you to be able to begin to see not just how Luke laid out the, the history of the church, but as we bring application to this passage today, I want you to understand it because as the gospel brings us into God's people, as it connects us to his people, it brings with it a dual focus. See, this is very applicable for our lives. And and you'll see that as as we read through these verses. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 12. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but all the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord's multitudes, or added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns and around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." Okay, I want you to see this. I, I want you to see the gospel at work. 
we've, we've moved now from a position where the church is looking inward and taking care of one another's needs and, 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 and doing, you know, doing what they have to do to take care of one another to a point where we see Peter just out wanting to let people know about Jesus. He, he wants to share the gospel. He's doing good works. He's not the only one. Luke lets us know that the apostles are doing mighty works and that people are being healed in this. And this is fixing people. It's making brokenness whole. It's taking people and, and, and taking their insufficiencies and, their, and their, their weaknesses and it's making them right. It's making them whole. And so what we see happening in this physical sense, really we can connect with in a spiritual way. I mean, I don't want to downplay the power of the miracle. Because first and foremost, the miracle gave them a platform from which to speak from. I mean, imagine if I could walk in here and bring some guy in a wheelchair and say, get up and walk, how impressive that would be. It would be big. I mean, people would all of a sudden start listening. In fact, there's ministries all over that are built off of guys who teach false gospels, but because they have a big show and they can get people to act like they've been healed, they make lots of money. They've got a big following. There's a guy that stands up every week, I mean, and stands up every day and says he's Jesus. And he's got over a million followers. You know, and there, there's people like Benny Hinn who have made false proclamations of, of prophecy. I think at one point he said that all homosexuals were going to be burned up, and he gave a date and a time. And it didn't happen. And the Old Testament tells us that if someone stands up and prophesies in God's name, and it doesn't happen, if it happens just once and they're right every other time, they're still a false prophet. So his power isn't his own. It teaches that in Deuteronomy. They have to be 100% correct 100% of the time. That's false prophecy. Even if it looks like he has power, it's false. Benny Hinn is obviously a smart guy. I, I think that he's, he's got uh, a bunch of followers, but the guy is he's false. So as we stand here today and try to understand what this, this is telling us, I want you to look not so much at the physical things, but see how the gospel restores. The gospel fixes brokenness. It restores. As these apostles went out to teach, they went out teaching confidently. They, were, they, were, they, they understood that these people needed, they needed truth. They wanted to give them something lasting and eternal. And so they went out with the message of God. And they went out with the message of God by the power of God. And so these amazing things were happening. And, and people re, were restored. And even though it tells us that even though some things had happened that scared people, that people wouldn't approach them, they wouldn't come near them. They wouldn't come to their church services. As, as the apostles gathered in Solomon's portico, they would see them and they were like, man, those are, some, those are some amazing people. They held them with high regard, but they wouldn't go near them because there was a fear of God, an understanding that, that God was big enough to do these things. But the apostles understood they had to go out with this message and, and with this power. And it would restore people. And yes, people were physically healed, but they were spiritually put back together. Relationship was restored. Relationship with God first and relationship with one another as well. See, the gospel brings restoration. It, it rights wrongs. It fixes brokenness. It heals our sin. It connects us back to our Creator. 
And what we see happening in a physical way, we experience in a very real spiritual way today. I want you to notice a distinction as well. As these apostles were out teaching and healing, and God's power was on them to do amazing things, they went out with truth, and they went out teaching people truth, and they weren't ashamed of it. And people were somewhat afraid to approach them. They, they, they were like, well, we don't want to go to their church services because we don't know what's going to happen. I heard that a man and a woman died. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to be a part of that. And I want you to see the distinction of how we do things differently today. Where the apostles were all about bringing truth and power and, and, and confrontation. And letting people see what it was to follow Jesus. They were living in a pure church, a church purified by God himself. But it says that they were growing more than ever. Multitudes of men and women were being connected to them. These people were being added and restored. The gospel was restoring them to a right relationship with the God that, that had created them. I want you to see the distinction Because we have so much faith in the gospel restoring people that we put on big shows and we try to entice people to come along and and water things down and not be too confrontational. We don't want to get in people's face and tell them that they're sinners and that they need Jesus Christ or else they're condemned. We're afraid to talk about truthful things because we trust more in our methods and we trust more in, in our programs and we trust more in our own abilities than the power of God in the gospel to restore. I mean, consider it. In America, we are in the least churched generation that has ever lived. We have the biggest churches that have ever existed in our history. But yes, there's less people in America that would claim to be Christian. There's less people that want to be Christian. And there's more people that hold the church with disdain than ever before as we try to be friendly and try to be kind and and, and try our best to just get people in our doors well let's just get them coming so that they can hear this message it's so good and it'll help them it'll help them live a moral life it'll help them do these good things it'll help them it'll help them be a good parent or spend their money the right way It'll, it'll, it'll help them know their neighbor better all the while forgetting that there's only one thing that brings restoration And that's the gospel. You see, we've got to lead with the gospel. We've got to understand that if we're going to experience God's power, maybe maybe we won't ever experience it in a physical sense like they did with, with, with Peter and John and all the other apostles working these amazing miracles. Maybe we won't ever experience a point where we walk up to someone and say, get up and walk. But if we want to experience the power of God, we've got to rely on His message, on His methods, on what He's given us to work with. I'm not saying that this gives us rights to get up and be a jerk. doesn't mean that we get to walk out of here and just hammer people and say, Oh, you're a broken down sinner. You're going to die and go to hell and I don't care. Because that's not the gospel. And that's not how the gospel was brought to us. But if we hadn't heard the gospel, if we hadn't been told that we are sinners in need of a Savior, we could have never 
turned from our old ways and heard the message of the cross. If we had never heard the message of the gospel, we could have never responded to the message of the gospel. And so if we don't bring the message of the gospel and lead with the message of the gospel, we won't give anyone anything worthwhile to respond to. The gospel is what restores. The gospel is what fixes the broken. The gospel is what picks up the lame. The gospel is what enables us to hear and the the deaf to hear and the blind to see. The gospel restores. And as we try to form this church, and we're forced to have this dual focus, not, not, not forced in the sense that we don't have any other choice. Obviously, there's all kinds of things we can do. But as we try to build this church and grow this church, as we, as we are challenged by the gospel to have a dual focus, meeting one another's needs, and living in a world that needs to hear this message, we need to understand that this is the only thing we have that's worth offering. Because it's the only thing that brings restoration. God's mission, it was, it was moving forward. People, by the multitudes, were coming and being added to the Lord, it says. The lost were being found. How many, how many of us would love to be a part of a movement where we saw lost people saved and, and every week we're being, we're being faced with this need to baptize and to disciple new believers. How amazing would it be to be in a place where, where God's power was so evident that people were giving up horrible, grotesque sins where husbands were no longer looking at porn and women were no longer looking to their neighbors um, and and finding some emotional attachment in a place where, where, where brokenness, where dependence on drugs, a a laziness that, that makes a man not want to get up and provide for his family was fixed to the point that, that these people would get up and they'd repent of their sin and they'd walk in a way that honored God. How amazing would it be to be in that movement? I think it would be pretty amazing. You know, we're connected to a network where we're seeing that happen all over the place. How amazing would it be to see that happen in Springfield? A place where people are so tied to religion and their methodology. A program that just puts things right instead of tying them to a Savior. How amazing would it be to be able to walk into a place that used to be used for debauchery, sinfulness, and use it for the glory of God to see the kingdom built. We're going to see that happen. If we're going to be a part of that, we're going to have to recognize that we must lead with the gospel. There is no other hope for it. That requires us to be responding to the gospel. It starts here with us.
This isn't something that people can get on the outside and just think, oh, well, they'll, they'll figure it out. We've been given the message. And then the mandate's been given for us to carry it with us. The gospel brings restoration. It restores. Well, as the apostles, as the apostles were doing this, as they were going out and... And, and, and doing this work, and God's power was on them. It was obvious that something was happening because there was great opposition began to be built against them. And it says, but the high priest, in verse 17, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. I just want you to get this. Think about this. We want so desperately to be friends with people that we're afraid to tell them truth. And what that reveals in us is that we would rather be accepted than, than tell them the truth about what's going on. But the apostles, ready to, to, to walk away from everything they'd ever known in their life. Remember, these people were raised Jewish. Their families were Jewish. Their tradition was Jewish. The way that they thought that they were, just, they were seen to be right before God was by working and, and performing acts of, of the law and, and sacrificing animals. And so Jesus' message was in complete opposition to that. It's totally different than that. And they have to walk away from every bit of this, and they're going into a place to the temple. And they're preaching this message that says your law is inadequate you will not be found righteous by God by, by, by looking at this. Jesus, this man that you knew, you crucified him. And he's risen from the dead. And these people were upset. They were mad. It says they were jealous. I think they were jealous because these apostles had a power from God that was obvious. The Sadducees and, and the leaders of the church... What, wouldn't, what person wouldn't want to say that they were an emissary from God and could just heal people on their word? What person wouldn't want to be walking through the streets and have fame so much that people are just trying to lay others down in your shadow? I mean, there was obvious results from what the apostles were doing. And the leaders of the church of the day, they were jealous and they were upset. They were jealous probably because of what the apostles were doing. They were jealous because they were gaining such a big following. They were jealous because they probably felt threatened. This is going to change their whole way of life. What if everyone continues to follow them? What if no one follows us anymore? So they oppose them. They arrest the apostles. And what I want you to understand here is that whether we like it or not, whether, whether we want to or not, when we lead with the gospel, we will oppose people. It brings opposition. It's easy to think about and nice to think about that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Yeah, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. He did. But we forget scriptures like Matthew 10, 34. You don't, don't, you don't need to flip there. Just let me read it to you. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. That's Jesus' words. 
wait a minute. I thought I was the Prince of Peace. I didn't bring, come to bring peace to the earth. I'm not, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. At some level, we do need to understand that none of us are worthy. But what Jesus is teaching us there is that he is bringing a truth that is in opposition to the systems of the world. To tell someone that they are a sinner and there is nothing they can do to... to, earn their own salvation or work it out in their own way. It is in opposition to everything that is naturally within us. To tell people that they're not as good as they think they are is in opposition to what people want to hear. It doesn't mean that we get to stand up and be jerks. If, if we bring only truth, we're cruel. We're, we're cruel. Jesus came with truth and grace. You see, he came saying that, yeah, you're not what you think you are. You have no hope on your own. But trust in me, and I give you hope. Trust in me, he says, and I give you life. Come to me, he says to the weak, because my burden is light. You see, he brought them both. You see, the gospel opposes everything that's natural in the world. It it, it opposes the systems of the world and it calls us to trust in Jesus Christ alone. But it's the only thing that restores. It's the only thing that offers hope. It's the only thing that comes with the power of God. My methods and mentality and abilities by themselves are absolutely worthless. If God doesn't choose to work through something of, that, that I do, it's good for about as long as our Easter egg hunt lasted yesterday. I mean, we, we went out and we, all kind of effort went into this, this thing that we did yesterday. All kinds of effort in, in hopes of seeing maybe a couple hundred, three hundred people. 11,000 eggs stuffed, candy in every one of them, thousands of dollars spent. Anybody can get up and do that. Anybody with a desire, anybody with, with, with half a brain can put that together. But if it's going to see lasting, eternal results, God's got to be involved. And the gospel's got to be brought. But that message is in opposition to what most of us want to hear. There's not a person that's sitting in this room today that's made it into salvation on their own. God saved you. He has restored you. And everything about Him doing that is in opposition to you standing and trying to do it on your own. But yet we do it every day. We, we try to be our own functional saviors every day. 
The gospel brings opposition. And if you're working in the gospel, and if you're expecting to see it restore, you should expect opposition. If Jesus saw opposition, if the apostles saw opposition, you should expect to see opposition. And if you're not seeing opposition, if you're not seeing walls put up and barriers put in place, and you're not dealing with trouble and trial, then you probably aren't leading with the gospel. Because only the gospel restores Only the gospel is truly in opposition to what the world would have. Let's keep going. Go and stand in the temple. I'm sorry, verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Here they are. They're in jail. All of a sudden, an angel pops out of nowhere opens the door, says, yep, you, get, you, you need to go and preach. We were just told not to. You need to go and preach. Preach the gospel. Preach the word that brings life. This is the only hope that anyone has. Go and preach it. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Here they are. They're thinking that these disciples of Jesus, they're in jail. They're getting the whole group together. They're getting every, every leader that Israel knows. They're getting together and they're going to say, hey, we're going to do something about this. We're going to put them on trial. We are going to shut them up. <clears throat> but when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what what, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in in the temple preaching or teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. It's really ironic, I mean, if you think about it. Really ironic. Where are they at? The, the, the prison's empty. Where are they at? You're not going to believe this. They're in the temple teaching the people exactly what you didn't want them to teach. They're doing exactly what you, you, you put them in jail for. They don't, they don't respect you. They don't honor you. They don't, they're not listening to you. Why would they, really? I mean, if an angel pops up, is, is that what it's going to take for us to get bold? For us to get serious about the gospel? Is, that, is, it, is it going to take an angel standing up in front of us and saying, go and teach the words that bring life? Is, is it going to take that for us to get serious about what the gospel does in a person's life? That the, 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 the gospel is the only thing that brings hope? See, these guys, they were, they, they were giving it all up. They're in prison. Go and teach these words. That, who, who knows what's going to happen next? They're already mad at us. But they go and do it. The priests and the, and the leaders send for these guys. They're, they're teaching in the temple. <laughs> it's pretty ironic. See, the gospel wins. In the end, the gospel wins. There's a book out. I, I, I wasn't sure that I would talk about this. There's a book out called Love Wins. 
I'm not one to totally just always bash on people. I've already picked out a couple of names this, this morning and, and said bad things about them. That's not typically my style. But in this book, Love Wins, Rob Bell is a guy that has been kind of pushing the limits and, and challenging people to think about things differently for a while. And I've not, I've not stood up and said anything negative about Rob Bell necessarily. It's, I've not always agreed with things he's done. I've not always agreed with his methodology. But now he's come out with this book called Love Wins. And in the book, he teaches that in the end, no one will die and go to hell. That in the end, it doesn't matter who you are, what's happened in your life, whether you've ever heard of Jesus, whether you know Jesus, whether Jesus has ever meant a word to you or not, or meant a thing to you or not, whether you've ever even thought of God, you'll end up being restored and brought to heaven. That's what his book teaches. And that's a lie from the devil. And in so doing, he's aligned himself with others outside the church. But he's right about one thing. Love wins. But you know why love wins? Because the gospel wins. You have hope because God gave us the gospel. We can have life because we've been redeemed by the gospel. You see, we all love verses like John 3, 16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's beautiful. It's amazing. I, I, I love that verse. But not many of us know what it says next. See, God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Hmm. Condemnation. He was just talking about how much he loved things. How, how could he condemn? Then it says that if you believe in him, you won't be condemned. But if you don't believe in him, you're condemned already. Not everybody is going to be saved. Only those who trust in Jesus. But the gospel wins because it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the message of the cross that brings life. The gospel wins. Love wins because the gospel wins. God's movement, His, his mission, His message is brought by His power and it brings real, lasting, eternal change because it's His. Because it belongs to Him. The Creator who's sovereign over all the world, who gets to write the rules. I mean, it's really because of God that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's really because of God that these chairs just don't float away from the earth because He wrote the physics books. It's really because of God that static friction is real. You see, he wrote how things worked. He holds things together. And when he says, you're going to have to come to me through my son, that message wins. Because he said it was that way. The gospel brings victory. Not because some man came up with it but because God worked it out. And in the end, in the end, just as we're seeing here, these priests are doing everything they can to stop it. They want nothing more than to stop it in its tracks. They don't want it to go any further because they don't recognize that restoration comes through the gospel. They don't recognize that opposition to them and their ways comes in the gospel. They don't recognize that victory comes 
in the gospel. They're hanging on to their old ways of life. They're trying to prove themselves worthy before God. They're trying to be a a good person. I, I mean, how many of us? How many of us? Maybe there's even people sitting in this room today that if you were asked, if if you were faced with with God right now in this moment, how many of you would say, well, I've been a good person and would rely on your own works and and, and that you would just decide that, God, I've, I've done the things you want me to do. That will leave you wanting. It will leave you empty. You will be condemned. Because hope only comes in the gospel. Restoration only comes through the gospel. Victory only comes in the gospel. And as we're seeing it laid out in this passage, the gospel is unstoppable. You can't stop it. We can't make it quit. These priests, they wanted nothing more than to end these guys. They wanted nothing more than than to see them quit preaching. So they challenged them. They bring them to them. They didn't use force. Because they knew if they used force, they would be facing all of these people that were following them. They're like, we don't want to fight. We just want to be friends. We want everybody to get along. But they wanted nothing more than to stop these disciples. And when they had brought them, it says in verse 27, they set before them the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. They filled it. The way to Jerusalem, this is how we started out this this, this passage, this, this perspective as the gospel moved. And and moved from this beginning and few people to just spreading all across Jerusalem. This is how it happened. They taught the name of Jesus. They taught the name of Jesus. We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and his apostles answered. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You hear what they're saying? You hear what what, what Peter is answering back, what these apostles are saying back? We can't obey you because we want to obey God. And we are witnesses of all that's happened, but we're not the only ones who give witness to it. The Holy Spirit gives witness to it. God himself. What they're saying is that, hey, we're on God's side. We're playing on his team. We're the ones teaching truth. We're the ones with the answers. I don't know about you, but I, I would imagine that this just grated against these leaders who had spent their whole life given to a lie. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The gospel brings restoration. But as we teach it and preach it and bring it and lead with it, we will face opposition. But trust this, it will win. What God sets out to do with his message will 
be successful. You will not preach the gospel. You will not share the gospel and, 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 and it be missed or mistaken or God not get something back out of it. You see, the gospel wins because it's God and it's brought by His power. And it may enrage some people and it may make some people angry, but it's the only hope a lost world has. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, Held in honor by all the people. It's a smart guy. He's, he's, he's held up. He's esteemed. I mean, he's a, he's a sharp dude. He knows the law. He stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do to these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But, it is of, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The gospel is unstoppable. And we can either live in it and work with it and share it and bring it to people knowing that's the only hope they have or we can stand in opposition to it. And when we oppose the gospel, who are we opposing? The very God who spoke the gospel, who gave us the gospel, who, who made the gospel real and true. The very God who came and put on flesh and dwelt among us. Who walked among us, experienced life on this earth. Who then humbled himself to be hung on a cross. That God is the God that says this is true. That God is the one that says there's nothing that can stop it. That God is the one that empowers it to bring victory through it. So they listened to him. They took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. So they didn't completely follow his advice because they had to do something, right? I mean, we got to save face here. So they beat him up. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Here we're about to get back into this whole dualistic perspective and, and two modes of looking at the world and, and looking inwardly at the church. But as you think about that, as you consider it in your own life... What you're willing to give up in your own life to see the church served, to see God's people ministered to, built up, edified. What are you willing to give up and to suffer loss for? How many of us are willing to take a beating and go out and be honored and feel great because we've been beat up for the name of Jesus? See, these guys counted it an honor. 
to suffer for His name. They counted it an honor to walk into this place and to, to disregard the rules, to say, you know what, I've got to obey God. I, I, I can't stand in opposition to God so that I can obey you. I've got to stand in opposition to you so that I can obey God and tell people that Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no salvation in any other name than by the name of Jesus. Well, you know, hey, we better leave them alone. Well, let's not leave them alone. Let's beat them up. And then maybe at least, at least people won't think we're weak. And when they walk out of there, they hold their heads high. We suffered for his name. How many of us are willing to suffer for his name as we live life as the church and live in mission as his ambassadors? See, because then as they left out and they were, being, and they were feeling this great honor, or this, they were rejoicing because they, they dealt with this dishonor, it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease, cease teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. You see, that what they saw two things as very important. The church gathered and the church scattered. They recognized that as they gathered in these home groups and as they gathered in small groups, that people needed to be told about Jesus. And they recognized that as they stood in the temple in front of large groups of people, that they needed to hear about Jesus. And they recognized that as the church lived life together, they needed to support one another. They needed to encourage one another. They needed to build one another up. They needed to meet one another's needs. They needed to stand together. Because as they brought the gospel, they were going to face opposition. Imagine what it would be like if it was one guy out preaching this message. What if it was one person all by himself out preaching this message? Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bam, 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 beat him down and he's done. But these people were to stand together. They were to to hold tight together. They were to depend on one another. They were to help one another. They were to minister to one another. They needed this. They needed the help of one another to stand up and continue pushing this message forward. They needed one another to stand by one another so that as they faced opposition, they didn't give up and they didn't get weak. And they stood strong and they kept going. You see, the gospel, it connects you and I to mission and ministry. As we're saved, we're saved to a people. We're brought into a family. We're connected with one another. That's why in our church, we emphasize community. We emphasize relationship with one another. We do everything we can to enable you opportunity to build relationships with others. Because I'm going to call you every week to a place where you honor God, not just in this moment with your lips, but I'm going to challenge you every week to go out out these doors and honor Him with your life. It's meaningless if you just do it here. The gospel brings restoration. The gospel is, is what brings victory. But as you bring it, you will face opposition and you will need us to stand with you. I'm not talking about going out and being a militant Christian. And being hateful. I'm talking about going out and loving your neighbor. 
and building a relationship with that person that you can tell them the truth and that they can see it exemplified in your life so that as they look at the church, they hear our message, but they see us living it out day in and day out. The difference between the church then and the church today is that we, we call people to this weak, un, undignified gospel. Just show up. Be a good person. We'll love one another. Come on in. We don't care what you're doing with your life. We don't care what you're trusted in. Just as long as we've got a big group of people every Sunday morning. We don't care if we you know one another. We don't care how involved in one another's lives you are. See, these people lived it. The, 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 the distinction might, might be easy to see in, in Mother Teresa's life. I use her as an example a lot. Mother Teresa could have said anything she wanted to. She could have done anything she wanted to just about. I mean, she probably couldn't kill somebody. But she had this message and she had this way about her. She was out living out the things that she taught. No, no, nobody would have argued with Mother Teresa if she said that Jesus was the only way. Because it was real in her life. She was doing it. She was living it. And it was authentic and it was real. And the gospel calls us to this life, to this dual focus that says we need one another so that we can get up and live on the mission that God's given us to live in. Recognizing that the gospel is what restores us. The gospel brings opposition. The gospel, though, wins. And it can't be stopped. And if you try, you're going to find yourself standing in opposition to God himself. So as we sit here today, I know that not all of you are regular attenders, and I know that we're missing a few of our regular attenders. I want us to consider what we have gone through as we've read through this book of Acts so far. I want you to see the example laid out ahead of us. The example laid out for us. And I want to ask you to commit to something that's bigger and, and broader than maybe we ever have or, or maybe you ever have or, or, or that even, even as a church that we ever have. I want you to commit your lives to the gospel. And in that, I mean, I want you to live for Jesus Christ. If there's things in your life that are sinful and dishonoring to God, I want you to quit. I want you to drop them. I want you to stop. And if you feel guilt as you do these things, then that's a sign. That's the thing you need to quit. Quit doing it that we might be a purified body of believers turning from our sin. If you need help doing that, I want to I encourage you to talk to someone here. We'll stand with you. We'll give you accountability. We'll give you help. We'll ask you the hard questions. And we'll stand with you. I don't want you to just do that so that we can be this purified body of believers. That, that seem to think we're good people. I want you to do it so that as God looks at us, he sees a people living repentantly, trusting in him alone for salvation, trusting in him alone to, to stay safe, and trusting in him to use us on his mission.
I want you to pursue this week sharing the gospel actively with someone you know. And I want you to come back next week with stories to tell about how you were rejected or dishonored or maybe saw the gospel win. I want you to be ready to share with one another how the gospel has being been worked so that as we share these stories, the success of God's work gives us reason to praise. I, this week, I, I was listening to Brent talk yesterday about a friend of his that he's connected with from high school. Not one of the easiest circumstances, but still an opportunity for Brent to actively and boldly share the gospel. He wasn't mean, but it's very direct. Matt's got a guy that he connects with at school at, at, at MSU. Been talking to him for a while and been dealing with the, the conviction that he needs to go further, that he needs to share more. And we're encouraging him to do that. How many of you will get up out of here and go home and not think again about what Jesus has done for you or what Jesus wants to do through you? I want as a church us to commit that our lives, having been changed by the gospel, are bound together by God. We are a family. And we can stand together. And if we're rejected by people out there, it's okay because we have one another in here. But it's the message we've been sent with. Will you commit with me to bring that message? Until we do. Until we're ready to get up and walk in it and quit considering our own needs first and quit considering our own honor first. We'll bump up against what we've been seeing happen over and over and over in this church. We grow a little bit, and then we stay there for a little bit, and some will go away. And we'll bring in some other people. It's time to get busy and be on mission. If you're here hearing these words and you don't ever come back to this church, you're still responsible for this mission. As a believer in Jesus Christ, We belong to his family. We've been connected to the body. And we've been sent together on mission. So what will you do? How will you go? Who are you going to tell?